This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, pitching perfectly, the film was better than the book. <gasps> dun, dun, dun! <laughs> Our listeners must be shooketh! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, basically this is one that's been quietly percolating in the hinterlands of my brain, mm-hmm. which is a place you don't want to visit. <laughs> uh, it's bubbled over into an episode, <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> so many things do bubble over from the cauldron of your mind. Yes. <laughs> it is a dark place. <laughs> there is an evil there which does not sleep. <laughs> now, as readers and writers, we realised that applying the legend the film was better than the book to any title is a very bold claim indeed. Um, and where we do agree with that statement, we are not making it lightly because we're very conscious that there are going to be people at home listening, gripping the edges of their desk. <laughs> Someone is driving, holding the steering wheel very tightly, eyes bulging. <laughs> How dare you! You come into my house! Um, yeah, uh, and obviously this is a thing where it's you know, it can be quite arbitrary or it can fit a very subjective set of criteria. So we haven't really worked up a set of criteria as to why something is or why it isn't. And we're going to make it more of a loose discussion-based episode. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, a little bit of kind of background. You know, the received wisdom from bookworms is that the book is always better in general. Um, So why bother with the film at all? And I think there are a variety of reasons why fans of the book might want to see the film or TV adaptation. Yeah, definitely. Uh, For one thing, the time commitment for engaging with a film is lower than engaging with a book. Um, unless you read like Johnny Five yeah. from Short Circuit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's also a lot of enjoyment to be had from seeing beloved characters and storylines depicted visually. You know, it's essentially more content of something that you love. It's extra. Yeah. Um, and a different medium like film allows you to engage with other fans and how they see the characters and stories. So reading is generally a solitary pursuit after all. Mm-hmm. And a visual medium is as close as we can get to really experiencing our favourite books through someone else's eyes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's before we even get into the whole angle of, of non-readers. What about them? You know, it, it, it opens up things as well. Um, it opens up fandoms and stuff to new audiences and I know lots and lots of people who have started with a film or a TV series and have then been funneled into the books because they couldn't get into the books initially but having kind of met the characters fallen in love with them the investment of the reading time was suddenly you know much more accessible 
Yeah, definitely. Um, also, let's hold ourselves accountable here. Yeah. <laughs> there's also also a certain amount, or rather there's often a certain amount of dismissive scorn by readers for non-readers who only ever watch the film and never read the books. Yeah. Some of that might even be justified, but let's be honest, a lot of it is snobbery dressed up in a fra- fancy frock coat. Yeah. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> non-readers who people, um, rather, non-reader people who... who f- who will find engaging with books hard also deserve and need stories and film and tv is one of the mediums which provides that the important thing is access to stories after all um and i really do think that this is very important not just as you know tv and stuff like that being an access way into books but just being an access way into stories in general is important yeah absolutely um, okay, so now we've got a selection of films, well, certainly films, uh, script-type productions, at least, shall we say, yeah. um, which are claimed to be better than the books. We don't necessarily agree with all of these claims, by the way. Mm. Um, we're going to go through these and discuss them in relatively high detail um, as to whether that argument holds any weight. And as always, this is our opinion. Uh, we may not even have the same opinion, because we have not pre-discussed any of this. No. Um, there's always room for disagreement with us anyway so if you think no that book is a thousand times better than the film then you can always tell us that we're you know we're happy to hear that yeah okay so let's start off with one which actually isn't a film at all but is a uh, is a is a mu- and, but it's going to be a film um it's but be it yeah. is a musical <laughs> stage play which is wicked uh, from the book Wicked, The Life and Times of the Witch of the West by Gregory Maguire. Yeah. Uh, honestly, I am 100% behind the whole the musical is more enjoyable and I would honestly say better than the book. Um, have you ever read the book? I have not actually read the book. I assume that you have. I'm, I'm going to be... <laughs> okay. This is going to sound like I'm slamming something. I'm not, because I think there are a lot of people who who did actually enjoy the book and liked the sense of whimsy, but taken to a really dark place that Gregory Maguire took the whole Wizard of Oz concept to. Mm. And he had a great idea. Why not tell the Wizard of Oz from the perspective of not an outsider visiting this wonderful magical world, but someone who'd had to grow up in it. Yeah. And not only grow up in it, but grow up in it different. Um, and that's what the musical takes away from that book. But that book is just nasty. And I don't mean nasty as in, oh, it's horrific, and that's what it's trying to do. It's just fucking nasty in places. It's nasty in the way that I don't know what he was trying to say. I think he was trying to be literary, which is nearly always a mistake, unless you are actually a literary writer, in which case you don't need to try to be literary. It just comes out (laughs) that way. Um, But he was... Uh, Okay, spoilers for the book, I guess, guys. Um, Obviously, you've got Alphabet, and uh, presumably most people are familiar with the plot of Wizard of Oz and the plot of Wicked, but basically, Alphabet's mother is left alone a lot by Alphabet's father, and he sort of disappears off, and he's very, very strict, almost almost religious zealotry kind of level of what it means to be an important um, munchkin type of person right and 
her mother's bored. Her mother's this beautiful young woman who's kind of bored. And so when a travelling man passes through and offers her some well, some green elixir kind of thing, mm-hmm. something that's a little bit naughty, uh, she indulges in it. And she's pregnant with Elphaba at the time, and they kind of have a little affair kind of thing going on. Mm-hmm. And Elphaba, when she's born, is born green with shark's teeth. Um, which means, I mean, they even make a point in the book of saying her mother couldn't couldn't nurse her because the teeth would have like <laughs> would have been awful kind of thing. Right. Um, so they had to feed her with a rag and bottle. This is what I mean. So this whole sort of like, oh my god, the baby's been born green and is kind of an outcast is taken to the nth degree, where Elphaba is actually a thing of horror as well. Yeah. In the book, um, and it goes on from there. I mean, you do see her grow up. You do see her go off to university which is essentially what Wicked's about what happens when the witch of the west or the future witch of the west and her sister and um, the witch of the north are all at yeah are all at uh, school together university together and it's kind of cool and it's a really interesting take from the musical's perspective on what happens with all of these characters and Dorothy is such a bit part she doesn't even turn up on stage (laughs) yeah Um, and it, it's kind of like a big snow job, a big con job, really, as to what happens at the end. And there's a really lovely story about friendship and being different. And again, you still have that whimsy, you still have that darkness. And Elphaba's got this huge social conscience. Well, she does have that social conscience in the book, mm-hmm. but she's almost powerless to change everything. Um, the Oz that Maguire writes about is is every bit as set in its ways as parts of our own world can be hmm. and there's this entire political system which stops people changing anything to the point where they can see what's coming in for the talking beast they can see that they are going to be imprisoned and forced to act like real beasts to the point where they lose language which is a very minor point in in wicked but it's a huge thing and Elphaba's going off to things like um these underground plays where you have a, a magical creature, a human, and a, a talking animal all on stage together, almost as if it's one of those experimental plays. But what they're all doing is they're talking, yeah, and they're all having sex together at the same time for people to watch. Right. Okay. <laughs> and it's weirdly exploitative and disturbing. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff in there as well. Um, there's there's loads of stuff in that book that is just. I don't think it needs to be there. It doesn't really add anything to the story. It bogs down the plot. And it's not a fun read. I did not have a good time reading that book. I don't think it's terribly written. I just don't... I think he was so concerned over how it sounded and how it how it played in in the literary sphere. And obviously he got somewhere with it. Yeah. Um, that he didn't consider, is this an enjoyable storytelling pastime and you can you can absolutely write something that's literary and enjoyable i mean i was talking about the seven moons of mali almeida Mm. not so long ago which is a fantastic literary book and still a really enjoyable read so it is absolutely doable but quite frankly the musical is better than the book (laughs) yeah i mean having not read the book and not really having any desire to i think either i i would argue from the standpoint that the musical has got several 
very particular elements working for it, which really do make it stand out. It is a complete story on its own. Yeah. Um, it feels accessible as an adaptation. Even if you haven't actually read the, the Wizard of Oz, even if you only have like a passing knowledge of the Wizard of Oz, you can absolutely understand what's happening in in Wicked. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, I, I, I would agree from my meagre standpoint um, that it's it's ultimately more enjoyable than the book. Um, not to say that the book is not without merit, but I do think that it's also more accessible than the book in a lot of ways, particularly if it's written in a very literary style. Um, the musical itself can be enjoyed pretty much by all ages and all pa paths of life. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's three more books in this series after Wicked, there's uh, Son of a Witch, which is Alphaba's son. Mm -hmm. and there's one about the lion, and then there's another one. I haven't gone on and read any of them because I was so disenchanted with Wicked. Right. And it's it's just one of those things where I love the concept of something, and then what someone does with it is just... It kind of disgusted me. Right. And that's very much about my own personal taste. Um, it wasn't helped by the fact that I got the book and then I saw the musical and then I came back to read the book and read the book and I was like, this is not what I wanted at all. <laughs> yeah, I, I do think that actually also that is something that we do need to recognise. Depending what you see first, that can actually, or what you read first, that can actually affect how you interact with the next thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, um, let's look at... The, this is actually a favourite cosy film of mine, although technically it's not really a cosy film, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you're, and you have a very different opinion about <laughs> certain things. Okay, um, true story here. Uh, Alan made me watch loads of rugby this year, and in return I said, okay, you've got to watch a few things I want you to watch. And one of them was Practical Magic, mm. um, which is obviously the film based on the book by... Alice Hoffman. The book obviously has the same name. Mm -hmm. I genuinely prefer the film to the book. Um, Practical Magic, the book by Alice Hoffman, is is fine. It's not as overtly witchy, as in it, the it's more sort of like the witchy elements are added as a sort of magical realism, mm -hmm. and it's much more about uh, the relationship. Well, I mean, both are actually about the relationship between two sisters yeah, and how different they can be and how they can be at odds and yet still really love each other. Um, you do kind of have the bit about... <laughs> in fact, I'll, I'll, let's do a plot summary because otherwise people are going to be like, what are you talking about, Jules? <laughs> Please get to the fucking point. Okay, so the main point is that there are two sisters, mm -hmm. both in the film and the book, and there's this belief that there's a family curse in place. In the book, it's kind of a belief. In the film, it's kind of a, no, it's definitely in place. She accidentally cursed her own, you know, your ancestor accidentally cursed her own line because of her broken heart. Um, which means that if you really love a man <laughs> that you get with, <laughs> eventually he's going to die. He's going to fall to the Owens woman's curse kind of thing. Um, 
one sister is very definitely I don't want to fall in love I do not want to fall in love and then lose somebody like that I mean I can see it as a child love makes you insane it makes you a crazy person I do not want to be that out of control yeah the other sister looks at what's happening and goes I can't wait to grow up and fall in love because it, it's an adventure look at it it's amazing I want to be completely overtaken by something so they're taking those two very different points mm. um, but the two sisters are very close and they've lost this is in the wake of the fact that they lost their own mother because their father died tragically because of the curse mm-hmm. and their mother basically just let everything go and then died allegedly of a broken heart although in the book it's a little bit more mundane than that yeah and what goes on that you know the two girls go off and live with their aunts who are both witches allegedly or you know in the book people believe they're witches but it's never really proved it, in the film they're very definitely witches yeah i mean they, um, they literally jump down from the roof at one point and fly and stuff like that yeah. <laughs> like there's no it's, there's it's no very, doubt <laughs> it's very definitely a thing there um and you know the two girls grow up and one of them is sticking very definitely to not wanting to fall in love with anyone or get involved she has that massive wall she's built in herself the other one's out there kind of like falling in these shallow forms of love as much as possible and having a great time until she meets someone that she's kind of obsessed with and he is not a good guy he is a bad guy to yield that amount of control over your life to to be that you know out of control just generally yeah um, and when he ends up hitting her, her sister comes and collects her. Um, they can't get rid of the guy and they accidentally end up killing him. And it's like, well, shit. Um, okay. In the film at this point, this is where they go, well, he's already kind of dark and evil. So if we just bring him back with a pulse, it's fine. We haven't technically killed him. We haven't committed murder because they're freaking out. Yeah. In the book, it's kind of like, we accidentally may have killed him there's something very weird going on and there's a weird man who keeps appearing at the end of the garden kind of thing <laughs> and again it's not it's not really proved it's more like the shadow of him and what he did is still haunting Gillian the the uh, other of the sisters yeah and casting a pull over the family so again it's much more hinted at I really prefer the film version of all of this and mostly it's because it's in some ways it's more accessible and it's warmer and it's less cynical um but i have to honestly say having watched it with alan the other day alan came away from it saying he really enjoyed it he thought it was great but he said that film didn't know what it wanted to be it didn't know whether it was like a cozy family thing it didn't know whether it was a romantic comedy it didn't know whether it was necromancer for dummies <laughs> and it, it's like it's, he said he, he he made a few little commentary points through it which were very entertaining but <laughs> he was just like what, what is this a film about is it supposed to be horror is this is it supposed to be a mystery what's it trying to do and the answer is seeing yes it with, <laughs> seeing it with him through through his eyes i'm like you're right this film does actually suffer from a lack of direction in some respects it's still a fun film i still love it um, and it came along for me at exactly the right point in my life, so it, it managed to fall into a favourite film mould. Mm. Um, but if you hadn't seen it and then you don't wait, you wait to, to watch it until you're in your 40s, it's like, yeah, I see what you mean. We're used to films with nuance and structure that know what genre they belong to, and this is kind of like all over the shop. <laughs> it really genuinely is. <laughs> 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think I'm coming at this from the same angle as you in that I watched it when I was relatively young. So I think even if I kind of rewatched it now, I'm kind of, I'm tinted by the experience of having watched it when I was younger. Yeah. Um, and I haven't watched it that recently, so I, I, <laughs> I don't know. I can, I can see what Alan is saying. <laughs> Definitely, though. It's just that you start off watching it and it feels like it's going to be the most cottagecore thing ever. And then halfway through, you're like, okay, they're just bringing someone back from the dead. And there's a possession story. Okay, some of this stuff is genuinely the stuff of horror, you know? Yeah. It's not. And there's a love story. Okay, that's fine. And if you can just accept all those things, that plays really well, probably. But um, overall, it's like, yeah, it is kind of a mess now you mention it. <laughs> I love it anyway, and I still think it's better than the book, the award winning book, okay? <laughs> when you say it like that. <laughs> And I don't think the book was bad at all. I just, did I like it, the book, more? I I gave the book three stars. I would give the film five stars, even though I know it's a shonky film <laughs> in places. It's definitely interesting, sort of seeing it from an external perspective. I kind yeah. of also wonder whether... There is an element to which makes perhaps the film a little bit more sort of accessible for for women and okay and so hear me out this is this is coming from the perspective that you know oh but no hang on the author is yeah alice hoffman and stuff like that um so i appreciate obviously it was it was written by a woman but at the same time I, i suppose that the sibling relationship and the way that it was depicted in the film felt very real to me yeah there's a warmth to it that's lacking in the book I found yeah um so perhaps that's something else which kind of ties in with it as well yeah it had such an amazing cast though so even though the direction was wobbly and even though it couldn't decide what genre it wanted to be it had such a great cast of characters who weren't phoning in, no one was phoning in, who were really going for it. This great cast of um, particularly the, the female leads in, in all of it. Yeah. Um, and you were just kind of like, yeah, I'm going to buy this. Okay, and now we're in the horror section of the film. Fine. <laughs> we believe you. Well, it's kind of interesting because in some respects, I think another reason why actually it would sort of work very well for younger female audiences is that I do think there's a there's a time in in a in a girl's life which is like there's a time in a girl's life when she is just incredibly interested in all the darkness of the of the universe yeah for most of us that is true and I I feel like you can sort of if you're watching this at that age there is this kind of element of what do you mean it doesn't know what genre it is I understand what genre it is supposed to be entirely, I understand what's going on because it's just kind of a reflection of yeah, I'm living in both that state of being very sort of ah, 
yes, very motherly, very affectionate, very kind of the, the cottage core vibe, as it were. But also at the same time, the eldritch horror of of necromancy and the unknown rising. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, it's like I think it captures the teenage experience. <laughs> yeah, it does, and the the young adult experience because the the two young women are kind of in the mid twenties, I think, by the time you get to that that point. And yeah, I just love the vibes of it as well. It is it's cottagecore before we actually had something called cottagecore. Yeah, totally. Apart from the horrific bit. <laughs> But then, to be honest, like to be honest, I don't mind the idea of a co- uh, cottage core horror. That actually sounds. It sounds eminently doable, doesn't it... it? It's like Rachel Harrison's cackle is kind of like, yeah, this is super cottage core and really horrific. Let's go. <laughs> you know. But I mean, it's it's also like Silver in the Woods. Remember we yeah. mentioned it. Well, there is there's a cottage core element to that as well, and there's also definitely a horror element to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very, very green man and yeah, you know, pagan darkness, etc. Yeah, absolutely. So okay, yeah, complicated. <laughs> <laughs> complicated feelings about practical magic. Uh, onto a different type of uh, magic: uh, the witches of Eastwick, um, from the book by John Updike. Okay, I read the book by John Updike. I borrowed it from the library and I'm so glad I did because I do not want to give him any money. Oh, okay. <laughs> I am like 100% behind. You know what? The film is way better than the book, you complete wanker. <laughs> and yes, I am slamming John Updike here and I am slamming his book, <laughs> literally. <laughs> his book is... Um, okay, Witches of Eastwick. Um, it's an 80s film, so some of our young... Um, Listeners. Listeners may not have actually watched the film. It's getting quite old now, mm-hmm. I guess. But again, very strong female cast, very strong uh, male leads supporting them. Jack Nicholson. So Jack Nicholson, Cher, uh, Susan Sarandon and Michelle Pfeiffer. Not bad. So decent lineup. And basically you have three women, the three women that I've just mentioned, their, their characters rather, who are in varying stages of life is a bit shit and they hang out together um and one of them is very kind of like she cannot let go enough to be at all you know you know to to kind of enjoy sex or anything at all or to form an intimate relationship with anyone right um another one is kind of like completely bogged down by the fact that every time she does have sex she kind of ends up pregnant kind of thing and she has children and she's just left looking after them and she's exhausted all the time and there's never any time for her another one has just gone through a very bitter divorce and she has a teenage daughter who's very kind of like well fuck you about everything Mm. so all of them are facing things that you know typically some women uh, you know a lot of women would face at some point in their lives just Mm. feeling generally like they've been cast aside and devalued particularly in the 80s yeah and before that and then a stranger comes to town one of that classic storyline um who you know they look at him initially and it's like well he's just an ugly little man he becomes really compelling really kind of and there's a little bit of sort of rivalry between them and then they all decide you know what he kind of he i think he may even say in the film ladies there's enough of me for all of you and he does and they're kind of like you know what we'll just share this guy so all three of them are kind of like yeah we'll share him it's fine 
and he, this guy turns out to be the devil and he's teaching them witchcraft <laughs> <laughs> and um, there's some really gross stuff that happens in that film as well and he has an end game he wants children right and this is what the seduction of these three women is is about um and by the time they cotton on to it all three of them are like well fuck we're pregnant okay what are we gonna do and what they do is they turn the tricks he's taught them against him mm. and banish him and uh they take over his big mansion and all go and live there and it's a very satisfying film overall but i mean are they all still pregnant with the spawn of satan oh no they all have their children yeah okay and they're gonna rid them they're, they've accepted the fact that you know what they are all witches and they're good with that fair enough you know fuck being powerless in this world that was created for men by men um, but that doesn't mean that they're gonna have a man rule them either um it's kind of i suppose it's a bit take back the night from the the original meaning of the phrase mm -hmm. um but it's fun and it's not anti-men with its message either. It's just kind of like, no, you get this much and no further. These are boundaries. Here are healthy boundaries. <laughs> Even if you're the devil, here are healthy boundaries. <laughs> and it, it's wickedly funny and quite, you know, quite dark as well. The book is one of the most sexist pieces of shit I've ever read. <laughs> it's not an enjoyable reading experience. It's very clearly a man writing how he thinks women would think right um i'm pretty sure there is a breasted boobily section in there at some point as well ah yes breasted boobily down the stairs <laughs> but he uh, really doubles down on it with having one woman when she's sitting on the toilet um just sitting there thinking it's so easy for men uh, wouldn't it be better if she could pee standing upright etc 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 I've got news for the men out there. Women don't really care that you can st pee standing up. We can actually pee standing up if we want to. It's just a bit messier. You know, this isn't a huge envy thing we've got going on. Yeah. <laughs> if anybody still believes that's a thing. <laughs> I do remember, like, from a young age, <laughs> I say from a young age, people saying, oh, yeah, you know, women are envious of that or things like that, or there being jokes about it. And I'm <laughs> just thinking, it really isn't that big of a deal <laughs> it's not something we think about at night you it's know like, late at night yeah. oh to be able to pee standing up it's like you a woman who is happy being a biological female or envious of having a penis like no i don't want comedy genitals that actually do their own thing all the time you know <laughs> this is this is not an issue for me and there are parts of being a biological woman that are kind of like a bit shit but but wanting a penis is not part of that. <laughs> no. <laughs> but that, that's kind of where the witches of Eastwick... And again, you know, the witchcraft element is kind of introduced as magical realism, only written by a white dude who's clearly never spoken to a woman in his life. Well, that's how it reads. Right. Um, so, yeah, didn't love the book. Wasn't impressed with that. Absolutely zero out of ten on that one. Don't recommend it. <laughs> the film was way better. <laughs> That's very interesting. I've never seen it or read it. Oh, you should watch it. You're going to find some of it really gross, in fairness, but I think you'd actually enjoy the whole process <laughs> of it once you got past the grotesque. Oh, you know me so well. <laughs> I mean, what I'm kind of taking away from this so far, what with Wicked and The Witches of Eastwick, is that blokes probably shouldn't write like semi-feminist 
stories about witches because you don't appear to know what you're doing. <laughs> but prove me wrong. If there is, if there are books like that out there written by men, I want to read them. Yeah. I think also the, the the other problem here is that they'll be like, oh yeah, it's feminist. We can't have a, a fem-, and like you can have a feminist text which follows men. Absolutely. <laughs> Where are my feminist male witch texts? <laughs> Yeah, just don't give me 360 pages about three women, supposed women, um, when you you don't know what you're talking about. And haven't bothered to research it. <laughs> yeah, or, you know, have a casual conversation with a woman. Or even it's another one of those... just meet one. <laughs> yeah, just meet one. Meet one. Have a conversation. I feel like John Updike was kind of in the... He was doing that thing where he was being very self-conscious in his writing. He was very aware of what he was writing all the time mm. in the sense of, does this sound literary? And so, um, you know, charitably, it may not be that he didn't do any research. It was just kind of like, does that sound literary enough? Um, is it shocking enough? Is it confronting enough? Um, and if it isn't, then I'm going to take it in this direction. Uh, a lot of people have given that book um, decent ratings, but I, uh, <laughs> I haven't seen any book reviewer who I actually respect give it more than two stars. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I didn't do a massive polling on this. I was just like, oh, that's noticeable. <laughs> I just love the fact you're like, a lot of people have given this, but uh, no one I respect. <laughs> Well, in fairness, I might respect some of the people who gave it five stars. It's just I don't know them enough to respect them. So, you know, if this is a book you love and I am trash talking it, and I am because I did not have a good time with that book at all, mm. um, then then tell me, let me know and explain why you think it, it's good. And I might have one of those, you know, the scales have fallen from my eyes moment and go, actually, yeah, you've got a point now. I still didn't like the book, but you have a point. It does have some merits. Yeah. Opinions are allowed to vary. <laughs> okay, so next one on the list. Uh, the Princess Bride. The screenplay and book by William Goldman. This is a slightly complicated one mm. in the sense of the way William Goldman set this up. Yeah. Because he wrote the book and he wrote the book with a framing device that said this is just the best bits of the original Italian text that his grandfather used to read him. Right. Um, to the point where even to this day there are people who go to bookshops and say, well, can I get the uncut version? Yeah. Not just, not the abridged version. The the unabridged version of The Princess Bride does not exist. It's not an adaptation from an obscure Italian text or anything. It is just the book by William Goldman. Yeah. Um, when he wrote the book, he always had the screenplay in mind. Always. He wanted it as a film. And he worked on getting that screenplay out for about, I don't know, 10, 15 years maybe? Mm. Um, and, you know, obviously someone else assisted him with the screenplay. I think what you get with the screenplay, with the film, is a more condensed version of what's in the book, which is a good thing because there's some very random shit in there about hats and going to war <laughs> over them, which would have really bogged down the film. It's a fun book, um, but the bits from the book that I think are the most fun are actually already in the film. So I'm not saying don't read the book, I'm just saying everything you need is actually in the film. Mm. Um, 
Would I say it's better? It's better in terms of a storytelling experience, I believe, because where he's gone, oh yes, um, and now I have to stop and summarise because in the original text, inverted commas, yeah. Um, there's six chapters about uh, how the hat fashion's changed and uh, you know genuinely this is a thing that's in the actual book <laughs> um, I also don't I think what's great about the film is that you know Buttercup mm-hmm. Princess Buttercup who you know the titular character who gets very little to do and has to play you know Robin White actually said she always felt she was playing straight man to everybody else's comedic character yeah and the whole thing would have fallen apart without her because she's a linchpin in playing this playing the straight man you know playing it straight all the way through yeah um she brought quite a lot of nuance to that character whereas William Goldman doesn't really treat her that well in the book in the sense of she's a bit more cardboardy yeah, it's it's sort of interesting because I feel that there is something to be said about how films and actors can actually add a whole other dimension to the storytelling. Um, and that can work very well um, if they're either sort of if they have followed the vision of the author um, and it can actually also work even better if they haven't if they said actually I want to give this character more substance or change them slightly um, which I, I do feel can actually work very very well um, and it can depend on the audience it can depend on the time um, and it will work for some people and it won't work for others yeah yeah definitely I think the general consensus seems to be most people prefer the film and I think most people seem to prefer it for the reasons I've, I've stated whereby it's, you know, it cuts out all the the, the quasi-satirical philosophical crap that William Goldman puts in with his big ruse about this being translated from an old Italian classic, etc. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I do agree. I think that the film also has a charm because of the actors. They they really do add a very important element to it, which um, might not might have otherwise been lost, particularly, I think, with Buttercup. Yeah, I mean, it's a classic film. It's somewhere between fantasy, uh, an actual lived written fairy tale, and um, pantomime. And it stays just on the right side of pantomime so that you're not going, ah, we're we're in fast territory now. Yeah. Um, But it is clearly designed to be a comedic fantasy film that's um, very tongue-in-cheek and very sort of like, yeah, here are are archetypes and tropes. Um, But at the same time, I'm going to give you a rollicking good adventure story. Yes. So... (laughs) In that respect, I think the film is an amazing achievement, and I don't think they should remake it. <laughs> you know, let it be what it is. Yeah, you're never going to improve on it. No, I, I really don't think you could improve on it. <laughs> um, it is, yeah, it's actually quite beautiful. And I think again that it's funny that a lot of the films that we are talking about, where we feel that they've they've done are better than the books, they are slightly older. Yeah. Um, and when we compare them with some of the kind of the remakes and adaptations that we've seen kind of recently, you know, it's always going to be a little bit, you know, different people are going to have different feelings about these things. And I can appreciate that and understand why. Um, but 
I do think that there's an element of the fact that in a lot of these kind of older ones, um, you have actors who are not taking it as seriously. And I say, when I say not taking it as seriously, if The Princess Bride wasn't hadn't been done as pantomime as it was, obviously Buttercup, she's the straight character, everyone else is kind of a little bit larger than life. If they hadn't been larger than life, if everyone had been playing it straight and they'd kind of gone for a more sarcastic kind of humour, the charm, it would have had none of that charm. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. And I do think that there is an element to the fact that people are sometimes afraid to take that risk now. Um, There was this whole kind of complaint about the most recent uh, Peter Pan, for example, um, where they said, where's the magic? What, you know, Neverland doesn't look like this amazing kind of magical place. It just looks like... I don't know. Like it's fucking grimdark yeah. from the shot size. Yeah, saw. I mean, you just saw it. Someone, someone uh, summarised it perfectly and they said, Neverland just looks like anyone in Wales's back garden or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, or Cornwall. And I was like, honestly, yeah. It's like, yes, it's beautiful, but it's mundane beauty. It's everyday yeah. world beauty instead of total child whimsy fantasy kind of whereas if you compare it to something like the 1990s film Hook yes with Robin Williams yeah and it's like that was silly and whimsical and in places quite dark but at the same time the actual fantasy elements of it were really magical yeah absolutely and weirdly enough it achieved more than it did you know in other elements where there's been all this obviously this whole thing of oh let's make it really really kind of um we've got to make it sort of diverse and stuff like that but then we've got to explain why it's diverse and then you just if you just watch (laughs) Hook like the Lost Boys are from all over the world and there is no explanation there's no sort of thing that they haven't gone oh well this that or the other it's like no we don't need to explain it because it doesn't need explaining (laughs) because the whole world is full of whimsy the feast the food that they're putting forward none of that looks like real food but at the same time it looks weirdly tasty you know they they lent into it and I do think that there are lots of sort of films Um, and adaptations which because they took that approach with the whimsy with the wonder with this sense of actually let's allow people to have fun with it um, and allow the audience to you know suspend their disbelief um, have have confidence in them as an audience rather than try and absolutely get everything precisely as it you know one way or the other um that actually has allowed the adaptations to work so well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah. Uh, Moving on to The Lord of the Rings, obviously by J.R.R. Tolkien, um, screenplay by Peter Jackson. And what a tome of a screenplay that must have been. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Um, I'm going to come right out here and say I can understand why people say the films are better because if you find Tolkien's prose heavy and difficult to digest um, it's still an amazing story and it's much easier to get into and again removing some of the random sort of little asides that Tolkien puts in um, and giving you a much more linear action-packed set of films 
Um, I don't think it's better, but I don't think it's worse either. I think you've got two completely different pieces of art dealing with the same subject matter and uh, they're equally good depending on what you're after. Yeah, I would agree. I feel that one of the most important things, and this is not something which is translated, unfortunately, over to the the next bunch that came out, um, is that <laughs> the Lord of the Rings series, it, it captured the heart. You know, you had, there you have Peter Jackson. He absolutely loved and adored the books. And so when he went into that adaptation, he really did want to capture the heart of those books. And I think that he really did do that. Um, Not least also, again, because of the actors, you have, um, for example, uh, Sir Ian McKellen um, came in and, and sort of made certain instructions to some of the younger actors and said, please do keep this. This is a detail in the book. Make sure you do it because you have no idea what it meant to so many of us. Like um, Sam holding Frodo's hand. Yeah. Um, so Ian McKellen said, you have to keep this. You have to do this. That is what is in the book. And so I really do think that a lot of it came to the fact that, that this was a group of people who genuinely cared about the books as well and they wanted to capture the heart of those books and what they meant to so many people um yeah but also without some of the stuff which actually does make tolkien quite inaccessible um certainly for me i really struggled reading tolkien um i still do um in a to to a certain degree I'm, i'm not ashamed to admit that um, and so, yeah, the honestly, the films were a brilliant access point um, and have been a brilliant access point for a lot of people. So I do think that they both stand very much on their own merit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, we should actually do an episode entirely on The Lord of the Rings because we could get someone else on and talk about it because there is a lot of stuff that we could cover. Yeah, we're just a little good. aside. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of material there. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay. Jumping next into Pitch Perfect, based on Pitch Perfect, the quest for. Uh, uh, why do they do this? Co- collegiate a cappella glory by Mickey Rapkin. Yeah. Um, Pitch Perfect is a great sort of new adulty type film. Yeah. Um, which is a lot of fun, and it's your classic coming of age, finding yourself, finding out that you're more than you thought you were and that you have, um, I suppose, that 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 you can stretch yourselves in ways that you, you never thought you could story. And it's very funny. Mm. And it's completely different, as I understand it, to basic... I mean, I, mean, I think the non-fiction book is actually quite funny. Mm. Um, but it's... <laughs> it's not really anything you know there's no story in there as such it's just kind of pitch perfect is the film it's not really taking specific characters from that non-fiction book if you see what i mean it's taking the ideas and it's made a really great piece of entertainment from it um i'm not going to say that pitch perfect the film is better than the book i don't know i haven't actually read the book but i did think it was really interesting that we got this this fun supposedly chick flick type of film which actually loads and loads of men really enjoy as well 
out of a piece of non-fiction that's that's kind of why I included it on the list because I was like oh wow I did not know that's where that came from no I didn't know that either that's really interesting um but yeah I do really enjoy the film it's just enough wish fulfillment without being saccharine and I really like the way certainly in the first film that Becca the main character goes from being this quite shut off I don't trust anybody I don't need friends the only person I need is myself and my ambitions to you know what I can make friends with this bunch of very diverse as in diverse from different backgrounds different types of people who have different perspectives on the world Mm. a group of women and you know what maybe possibly the guy who um I keep pushing away is actually a decent person and I should give him the time of day not that he deserves it but just actually that maybe I could be a better person with him in my life kind of thing and it's done quite subtly and with lots of nuance Mm. amidst all the humour so that's kind of why I like Pitch Perfect gotta admit I have never watched it oh how have you not watched oh, you, okay it's all about basically singing so you'll be all over it you should totally watch that <laughs> the other two after it aren't too bad either the second one's pretty good third one's a bit eh but you know it's fun I think you'd enjoy it okay I will I will have to give it a go thank you okay uh, moving on a proper teen flick Mean Girls uh, the screenplay was by Tina Fey mm-hmm. famous comedian uh, based on the book uh, by Rosalind Wiseman which is a, another non-fiction book which I didn't know called Queen Bees and Wannabes Helping Your Daughter Survive Cliques Gossip Boyfriends and Other Realities of Adolescence um, everything I've heard about that book is that it's a really useful open-minded book mm-hmm. and the fact that it talks a lot about it's a bit like um, uh, was it Resurrecting Ophelia there's a book called um reviving Ophelia right. which deals with very similar subject matter and it's about how you're kind of treated like you're just a slightly deviated boy mm-hmm. up until you hit about sort of 10 and then suddenly you're thrust into this world where you're expected almost to assume an adult woman's role yeah, uh, without being prepared for it and there's all this other stuff suddenly you're being flooded particularly now uh, with everything on the internet with ads with magazines with television programs and stuff of all this stuff you're supposed to be if you are female and we're not living in a situation where girls can like clump together like that and act in a way that is natural and it's a bit like okay this is gonna sound weird but bear with me when people originally started saying well wolves are like this they form these kind of hierarchies in packs they weren't studying packs in the wild they were studying packs kept in unnatural conditions in small enclosures so when they said things like no wolves will tear each other apart they were looking at the fact that yes they will because any animal that you push together with many of its if its comrades like that will start tearing each other apart and it's very much the same with teenage girls it would be the same with teenage boys as well except that the cage for teenage boys is different it's wider it's got broader parameters whereas the cage for teenage girls is made that much smaller by all this influx of stuff that you are supposed to be Mm -hmm. and that's kind of what this book is is dealing with as I understand it Um, and Mean Girls is a really interesting and again funny film which is a social commentary on this Mm. 
Yeah, absolutely. I did not know that about that that it was based on a um, on a non-fiction text. Yeah, I, I mean, I didn't until comparatively recently. That is uh, really basically Tina Fey read it because she was wanting to she was wanting advice for her own daughter and sort of like God, I don't want her to grow up the way I did. Yeah, and then went. I've got an idea for a film here. (laughs) (laughs) That's really interesting. So I think that's really cool. Um, What's great about the film is it deals with all the stuff like slut-shaming, girl-on-girl hate. The fact that it is natural for us to compete, for us to go through phases of genuinely being really mean and tearing each other down. Yeah. And how we can get past that into an area where we're secure and we can just go yeah okay we'll channel your energy into that that's a better thing to do kind of thing yeah slightly healthier yes (laughs) no that is really interesting I genuinely did not know that also I I absolutely love you comparing teenage girls to wolves you thought you might There are many other analogies. They, I mean, they found it, I think, with rhesus monkeys and with chimps and things. And a lot of the hierarchies that... Basically, the hierarchies that form when you force a group of creatures to live in close proximity that wouldn't be natural to them mm. are not true hierarchies. And it's the same. You force a bunch of teenage girls into a school environment together and then you hem them in with with adverts and Instagram pictures and, and TikToks and, and everything else, you are not getting a true picture of female hierarchy. What you're getting a picture of is this unnatural situation yeah. and how we respond to it. And generally it's not good. Uh, it makes me so afraid. Like, just even thinking back to that. <laughs> it makes me so afraid for the future. If I have kids, oh, teenage girls are really scary. (laughs) Yeah, weirdly, teenage boys are quite easy to handle, Um, from my perspective. I used to... I I regularly face down groups of 20 teenage boys outside the library, and they never... I mean, they'd swear at me, but they did what I told them to do. Mm. If there were teenage girls, just two or three mixed into that group... I knew I was actually in some physical danger. Not because the girls would attack me, but because the presence of the girls there and the things that girls do to get boys to act in a certain way. Mm. And this isn't like victim blaming or anything. This is just kind of like... Teenage girls do tend to manipulate teenage boys into acting certain ways. And even just their presence can make teenage boys suddenly lash out. Yeah. And some of it's natural and some of it's kind of like yeah you've got to be a bit aware of what the dynamic is mm. so there you go <laughs> <laughs> okay our next one um, Fight Club uh, which is obviously based on the book by the same name by Chuck uh, Palahniuk um, this is one of those interesting ones where I, I feel that a lot of people who really, really prefer the um, the film don't actually get what the intentions of the author were. No, it's really for the funny. Book. <laughs> what, okay, what makes me laugh about this? Personally, this is another one where I'm like, 
I like the film and I like the book and it's very noticeable that the film literally uses lines from the book almost all of that dialogue is direct from the fucking book yeah um, so it's not that there isn't any difference between them there's obviously a few differences but essentially the book and the film are very true to each other mm. or the film's very true to the book what makes me laugh is the fact that Chuck Palahniuk um, prefers the film to the book and is actually quite embarrassed that the book is out there <laughs> husband when he was asked he was like no the film did such a did a much better job of what I was actually trying to say <laughs> even if people don't understand that what I was trying to say is that toxic masculinity is really bad and you know maybe we should have other outlets for it than just blowing shit up it did it so much better than I did it, that is the really interesting thing because yes that is what you know what he was trying to say is is it is that it is this whole thing against toxic masculinity and yet the amount of people who I've seen who've basically been like, oh yeah, the book is, sorry, the film is so much better um, because they felt that the book was maybe too preachy or too, um, not preachy, but um, too experimental, I guess. Um, and just, they weren't getting it. it. It's kind of interesting for me. But yeah, a lot. So many of the people who've said, "Oh no, the 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 film is so much better," have also been the people where the intention behind the film has just gone completely over their heads. Yeah, absolutely. I think the people who watch the film and go, "Yeah, it's about you know how actually learning to fight and having an outlook for violence is the best way for men to go forward," I don't necessarily disagree with. Um, having outlets for violence or for physical exertion mm. I just don't think actual fight clubs are the best way of doing it I think find yourself a martial art that suits you mm. and, and do it there if you can um, but and, and I understand that because that, that's a, a need I've had all my life as well so you know there's nothing really wrong with that and we shouldn't punish people for having needs like that and we should absolutely have healthy ways for them to come out mm. um but what people don't seem to understand when they're all kind of like, yeah, this is how you teach men to be tough, you know, to bottle everything up and look at the system and want to tear it down, etc. Like, did you miss the entire section where he's drifting around depressed looking for something? And one of the things that helps most is going to a place where he can just cry with other men. Yeah. Did, did you miss, did that scene just not make any emotional resonance with you? Yeah. Because that that's one of the big points is that, if, if it was safe for men to have these emotional <laughs> releases, it wouldn't necessarily all have to come out in violence. Some of it might, but, yeah. you know, testosterone's a thing. Yeah, absolutely. But it was, yeah, it's interesting in that the only way that he can find this place where he can be sort of emotionally vulnerable is its only spaces which are, which are available where it is just about socially acceptable for men to be crying when it's in extreme cases and yeah, testicular cancer yeah support groups yeah and it and it can't just be actually i'm just feeling really bad and i and i need some help why am i not allowed to cry is this not an extreme case if i feel this bad and it's like no you don't have an excuse to feel that bad um yeah i think i think one of the big problems is that there are people who watch the sort of the film and they see the end with everything kind of blowing up and stuff like that and they think it's meant to be aspirational and yeah 
it's not <laughs> it's the fact that you get uh, again I think they must just mind wipe the end of the film where he shoots himself and he in the end he shoots himself through the cheek rather than through the head which is what he intended yeah. he has to destroy Tyler Durden the Tyler Durden who created the fight club yeah because he's literally created this split personality which again is a real commentary on toxic masculinity yeah um and in in order to be somebody who is whole he has to kill part of himself um and it, it's like that's not aspirational that's the kind of you kind of need some outlet for all these different aspects of yourself you cannot be just one or two things you need to be allowed to experience the entire range of human experience yeah so uh, yeah I think it just when when you get the people like lacing red laces into their black boots and saying yeah let's go and kick people in it's like you've the entire message of that was completely lost on you wasn't it words are just things that happen and they go in your ears and they don't really make a resonance in your brain yeah because I'm, I'm right in thinking that the the author is actually a gay man isn't he yeah yeah um and again the, the so many people who who say oh yeah it really resonated with me and i, I kind of narrow my eyes like why <laughs> <laughs> explain to me what about it resonated with you because depending on your answer I might feel differently <laughs> yeah definitely okay moving on to Bridget Jones's diary the book by Helen Fielding and the very successful 1990 I want to say 1996 film but I could be wrong um, with Reese not Reese with us oh for fuck's sake <laughs> Rennie Zellweger yes. sorry <laughs> I don't genuinely think they're the same person. Just the wrong R name came out. <laughs> um, I don't agree that the film is better than the book. Because this is one where... Because, you know, Bridget Jones's diary is a Pride and Prejudice retelling. Yes. In the same way that Bridget Jones' uh, The Edge of Reason is a, a retelling of... of want to say persuasion and then Bridget Jones Mad About the Boy is a retelling of uh, another one um, and they are they're Jane Austen retellings mm. and I do think the book does do it better because it, it can it's got more scope to bring in all the nuance and everything that said that first Bridget Jones film is really really good it dwells slightly too much on the body insecurities and stuff yeah. which the book doesn't you know there's more to it in the book but it's a visual thing so it's easier mm. I think for them to show it in the film um, and Bridget is a lot more intelligent in the books and they, they kind of dumb her down a lot in the film because it makes for greater comedy yeah though I do feel like in the later ones that they uh, in the later sort of films they did they actually kind of allowed her to become intelligent again they allowed her to say no she is actually intelligent which she's not an yeah. idiot she just sometimes act, acted a little foolishly when she got nervous and stuff like that and which I can appreciate yeah. <laughs> I mean the, the third film again is very good I think you can tell the American direction of the second film because it doesn't feel like British comedy there mm. is there is a there, there is a genuine difference this is a British book based on uh, an English novel writer's works and the comedy is is not transferable really in the same way to a 
it can be appreciated by a US audience, but it's not transferable to a US method of of direction, in my opinion. Yeah. So the second film's okay, but it's not as it, it lacks the the sort of nuance that the first and the third films have. Yeah. Uh, they're still really good films. They're 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 fun. They are a lot of fun, mm. and the books the books are just just better, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I, I honestly, I can't comment because I just don't know the books as intimately as I know the films. Um, but I do agree, I think that there's something which does come out in the books as an adaptation of, of Jane Austen, which feels a little bit more obvious. Yeah. But I do think they they adapted it very well, and I can understand why for some people the film does work better than the book. Books, sir. Okay. Howl's Moving Castle, Diana Wynne Jones. So this this is one that could that can divide people, I think. Yeah, I mean, I'm in the Lord of the Rings space here as well, where I really love the film. I think it's gorgeous, um, and I think it's true to the spirit of the book, even though it's not really true to the storyline of the book at all. No. Um, but I also love the book. I think the book is a perfect created fairy tale, and it's really clever, and it subverts a lot of fairy tale messages and tropes and things, and it's a really enjoyable read. Mm. So I like them both as separate pieces of art. Diana Wynne-Jones really liked the film. She really liked the way they saw her characters and her world and what they did with it. She was not offended that they did not completely follow her storyline, hook, line and sinker. Yeah. Um, but I will say that the book does contain the freedom that, I mean, it's, it's a very subtle message for what is effectively a middle grade children's book. But in, in the book, Sophie is quite a quiet person. She finds herself becoming even more withdrawn and quiet and not socialising with everyone until she gets this terrible curse on her and becomes a 90-year-old woman. Mm. And then suddenly uh, she's free to speak. She's free to be rude even. She's free to be stubborn and determine her own direction in life. Yeah. Um, and she doesn't have to worry about people looking at her and that's a huge thing and it kind of comes across in the film but it gets a little bit lost in translation that's the only criticism i'll make of the film yeah i i do feel that yes the film is stunning visually it's beautiful it has these incredibly emotive um visuals and these incredibly emotive scenes. If you watch the film itself, it doesn't actually make a lot of sense. Yeah, it's kind of, it's got that, that Japanese flavour of uh, we're falling into Japanese fairy tale here, which if you like it is great, but if you, if you want something that's a bit more, I don't know, A to B to D kind of thing, <laughs> um, won't please you as much. Yeah, um, in some respects, I did find it a little bit irritating in that you can just get swept along with the whimsy of it um, but then at the same time sometimes Sophie would be doing things that for me didn't make any damn sense at all yeah um, so 
yeah I'm in two minds uh, but I do think that actually yes they should be treated differently um, not as one and the same um, but as two separate entities yeah um, basically if you've seen the film but you haven't read the book don't assume you have got a handle on the actual original story because you haven't yeah it's very different just because that's not what they've told you <laughs> they've given you bits of it yeah and, and and don't go into it thinking oh it's going to be this really heartwarming you know that the romance is going to work in the same way like <laughs> Howl is a slightly different character in the like they touch on it in the film, but uh, honestly, he's um he's worse. <laughs> yeah, he's, I, he's he's worse than you think he is. It's one of the best quotes for me for Howell is the fact that he says that he's a, he he admits he's a terrible coward, and he the only way he can get himself to do anything scary is by telling himself he's not doing it right up until the point where he is already doing it. Yeah, and then he can't do anything else except continue. Whereas Sophie's quite brave, and Sophie. And Sophie basically argues her way into a relationship with Howell, and both of them are in the middle of it before they realise that, oh, we formed this relationship, I guess we'll get married then, so we can argue more conveniently. <laughs> I do, I, I really do like that about it, which is just, it, it's the two of them falling in love, but like both of them unwillingly falling in love, but at the same time yeah. willingly falling in love. <laughs> It's it's that whole quote which is oh I can't believe I'm gonna sleep with this person you don't you don't have to no but I'm gonna <laughs> the, that's the thing with Diana Wynne Jones's books as in she she actually writes these really sweet romantic subplots and plots mm. like if you ever read Fire and Hemlock but she will not absolutely does not touch on sentiment if you want sentimental even slightly cheesy corny stuff you're not going to get it from Diana Wynne Jones these are people who have put themselves through the ringer and it's kind of like you're the best person for me god damn it <laughs> <laughs> listen I hate to admit it but you're <laughs> I seem to have fallen in love with you I know I know stop gagging <laughs> Honestly, yeah. Okay, all right. <laughs> Our final one is Ella Enchanted by Gail Carson Levine and the film of the same name, which starred Anne Hathaway. Oh, I have definite opinions about this. Oh, you go first. Fire away. Okay. Anyone, anyone who tries to argue with me that the film is better than the book, I'm sorry. <laughs> Out the window. I no, I'm not. But You're dead to me. No, no, <laughs> not that extreme. I can totally understand why there are some people who really, really love the film. And again, I do think that it comes down to what did you come across first and when you came across it because I think for a lot of people it was a very informative film. It's something that's very connected to their childhoods, um, but. And for a lot of people, they saw the film before they actually read the book. Um, but from my perspective, coming at it from saying, this is such a brilliant book, there's so much here, and what the hell is this, <laughs> is this film? It is so inaccurate to the book. They completely massacred some of my favorite characters. Um, and it was very 
very of the era. I'm just gonna I'm gonna say that before I say anything very impolite because I was about to become very impolite. It was very much of the era. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to admit I watched the film and then realised it was based on a book, but I was in my uh, early twenties, mm. so it wasn't like a childhood classic for me or anything. Um, and I was like, oh great, there's a book. And then I read the book and I loved the book. I loved the book even more and I enjoyed the film as a piece of very pantomime-esque fantasy and it is a pantomime it is basically Cinderella pantomime yeah with a little bit of you know it goes in some interesting directions if you view it strictly as a pantomime it does some interesting stuff um but it's I think if it had been a beloved children's book for me as much younger, like in the same way that Little White Horse was a beloved children's book for me, and then I watched Moonacre, the movie, mm. and what they did with that, and the rage, <laughs> I can understand how people would feel about that. Um, the book is, is, quite frankly, it's a superior book. It, it is. Mm. Um, but I still find the film quite entertaining. I, I'm, However, I'm afraid I, I just, I couldn't. I was, Madeline, I actively Madeline. disliked the book. <laughs> Sorry, actively disliked the film. Madeline had the books recommended slash thrust upon her by me, saying, oh, you must read these, you'll really like them. They're middle grade, they're you know, fairy tale retellings, but, you know, with some real oomph to them. Um, and then I said, well, the film's not too bad. So you went and watched the film after reading the book, like straight away after reading the book, didn't you? Yeah. And you just got this sort of bewildered, angry sounds from me. <laughs> you just got a series of messages saying, what have they done? What have they done? What have they done? I was like, well, it's a pantomime of the book. It's like, yeah, but what have they done? <laughs> like, you could have done, you could have done a pantomime, but what what is this? And I was watching it and I was like, this, the thing is, I was watching it and going, yes, this is my childhood because I, it was totally the... Right, it's it's meant to be medieval, but it's absolutely not medieval. It, it's faux medieval, and I was like, I'm really angry. <laughs> I'm so angry about this. My yes. rage knows no bounds. <laughs> so yeah, apparently that was a mistake. Saying, oh, try it, <laughs> give it a go. Yeah, I no, it wasn't a mistake. I would have watched it anyway. Um, and again, I really do understand that that for a lot of people it was very informative, and I do appreciate that. Um, I don't begrudge you that, and for the people who have enjoyed it. But for me, it was totally wrong on so many levels and genuinely yeah. upsetting. <laughs> for something I felt was so charming and had so much potential. I was quite annoyed by how Americanized it was. Yeah. I think that's probably the best way that I can describe it. It was your classic thing of it's been run through Hollywood. It's been run through LA. Yeah, it's been run through LA and in that way has been made totally inaccessible for <laughs> particularly for what I was expecting. <laughs> yep. Oh, I'm just getting sort of flashbacks, shivering. <laughs> oh my god, trauma flashbacks yeah. from Ella Enchanted. From Ella Enchanted. Yeah, it affected me so profoundly. I was so upset. <laughs> <laughs> 
so there you go um <laughs> we have reached the end of our list I, th- there were, I mean there are lots and lots more um but i i <laughs> I think we should probably sort of finish off there for now. Um, Ultimately, I think we can agree that everyone's going to have very different mileage when it comes to this, and there are lots of different factors which come into play when it comes to, you know, how you interact with, with fiction. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Very much so. And really, I've, I, I mean, has there ever been, have you ever come across someone who said, oh, the film is so much better than the book, and you have genuinely just been absolutely flabbergasted? You've just not understood it. Has that ever happened yeah. to you? Yeah, no, that's happened loads of times. I can't give you a specific example because it's happened that often. And I gen- generally find it's because I think in fairness most of the people who've done that to me don't like the act of reading or they have a I, I honestly I don't believe there really is any such thing as someone who doesn't like reading I think you just haven't tried reading something that you like yet yeah um but you know if you're if you genuinely don't believe you like reading you're not going to keep experimenting with it to find something that you actually like are you no so it becomes kind of a, a vicious circle in that respect but a lot of them are kind of like, well, it's better than the book. And I'm like, well, have you read the book? Well, no, of course I haven't read the book. I'm like, yeah. Okay, so we're having a discussion here about something that you haven't even engaged with. Yeah. Um, it's like Alan would swear blind that the Lord of the Rings films are better than the books. Um, he does not hold my, you know, they're both they're both pieces of art in their own right, and they each add something. Um, he just hates Tolkien's writing so much and that is a legitimate opinion because he's tried and the stuff that he can get through without any problem at all the fact that he's DNFing stuff yeah is is unusual so that's fair but I'm trying to think of an example where people have said oh yeah the film's better than the book I I think it might have been that Pride and Prejudice film (laughs) or the Persuasion film the most recent one Oh, it's better than the book. Oh my god! <laughs> like, I, I need to leave this conversation because I am so full of rage right now. I know it's not reasonable to be enraged by this, but I am. How dare you talk about my favourite Jane Austen book like that? <laughs> Jules has been visibly, dis- Jules is visibly distressed. Please allow us some time to. Uh... <laughs> I think the other one that got me is people said, and I haven't watched this, and I may give it a go, but I, you know, probably with restraints because otherwise. I might do some damage um, is the interview with the vampire the HBO series people are saying it's better than the book and I'm like that's already setting my teeth on edge even though I can't honestly say that I don't think the show is better than it is worse than the book mm. um, but what I know they've done with the series and certainly with the Mayfair witches is kind of like oh my god the fact that you've done that and the cynical reasons you've done what you've done instead of having some moral courage um, has already put my back up so Mm. I may not be going into it with the best frame of mind (laughs) yeah so I'm trying to own my own shit here a lot as well (laughs) yeah I think ultimately it is just it's down to a variety of different things and 
I think for the most part we can we can be very respectful for one another um, and what works for one person might not work for other people um, and I think we can also be we I think we can also disagree with that I can definitely say out the window without me you know as long as I'm not actually genuinely trying to throw someone out the window <laughs> because of how they feel about a beloved children's movie I'm <laughs> Like, yep, yeah, Ella Enchanted. The film is better than the book, and Madeline comes along randomly and defends <laughs> Just break into uh, various people's homes. <laughs> Heard you were talking shit. Yeah, basically. No. Um, I think we can all just be kind, respectful, and understanding. Um, and also, we can engage in debate and disagree with one another about these things we all have different mileage um you know i'm i know that there are lots of people who get very upset with me when i say actually yes i do prefer the lord of the rings films to the books because like alan i find the writing quite inaccessible um and so but that's a legitimate concern you know that is yeah that is an issue but i i also wouldn't be foolish enough to say that I, I wouldn't say right one is better than the other um, I would say one is better than the other for me as a yeah. consumer for stories um, but I don't get to dictate how other people kind of interact with fiction yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> so what about you guys are there any here that you're listening to us shaking your heads like how dare how dare you um have we mortally offended anyone is anyone planning on you know challenging us to a duel uh as always we're very interested to hear from you and are there any that you think we've haven't talked about today that you think are quite derisive um or you know agree disagree as always please let us know now before we go it is time for our dissecting dragons recommendation of the week and jules i believe that you've got one for us yeah i'm kind of recommending a series here um this is a series of books that i initially i just thought it was a trilogy and i picked them up in 2012 and read them like cover to cover immediately honestly you can tell that they're this author's the, certainly with the first one mm. you can tell it's the author's first book and I say that with all the acknowledgement that I Belong to Earth was my first book and there are parts of it where I look now and think I wouldn't have written it like that mm. you know because your first book you, there has to be a first book and your first book is probably going to wobble a bit yeah um, that said these are so much fun they're kind of romantic thrillers with a little bit of sort of hinted at Wiccan magic in there as well. Okay. Um, the first book is is called Phantom, and it is kind of a retelling of Phantom of the Opera. Okay. All right. That's interesting. Um, it, it's the dark musical series by Laura DeLuca, and I've just had so much enjoyment out of these books. I can't believe I haven't recommended them. What happens in the first book is you have uh, Rebecca, who is the heroine and she is in her senior year at school and she's always been really quiet and quite mousy and withdrawn and then suddenly it looks like her school drama club is putting on 
Phantom of the Opera. Right. And it's her favourite musical. She loves it so much. She loves the story. She even loves the book Phantom of the Opera. She's an absolute phantom nut. And her friend says, well, why don't you try out for it? You can actually hit all those notes. But the thought of singing in front of people makes her feel physically sick. Mm. But she does it. She does it and she gets the lead role of Christine. And someone else who tries out on the same day is a new student who goes by the name Lord Justin. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and he and he sticks out like a sore thumb because he's a goth. Right. And he's very flamboyant and he has the most beautiful voice and he gets the part of the Phantom, which causes all sorts of tension because the guy who gets cast as Raoul, mm-hmm. who is supposed to be Christine's you know, love interest is the guy that Rebecca's had a crush on for like four years Mm -hmm. and he hasn't even noticed her he's the cool surfer dude who just you know he's on the basketball team and everyone loves him perfect Tom kind of thing and after that tryout he notices her and he's kind of like I'm actually noticing that leading the leading lady kind of thing so yeah you do kind of have that love triangle thing where she's like I should want Tom because he's the sensible choice yeah um but I'm really, really drawn to Justin. <laughs> and then there's there's all this weird shit starts happening, as in there are accidents that happen on the set and then somebody gets killed. Um, and loads of random things go really badly wrong and Rebecca can't help feel it's centred around her somehow because she keeps getting these notes and these weird text messages that are quoting parts of Phantom of the Opera to her. <laughs> And it, it just, it turns into this, this you know, as I said, uh, this first book is a really, really enjoyable story that maybe isn't the best written thing that it could be. And it's just really good. It's so entertaining. And I, it's one of the rare occasions where I'm like, even though every single character at some point is really fucking annoying, I'm really shipping the main characters, <laughs> which is so rare for me. Um the second book which I you know I won't go into too much detail but it's kind of a retelling of Sweeney Todd with the same characters the third book this is a really ambitious drama club (laughs) well no because they've gone off to university so it's their first year of university right and uh, they've got parts in in Sweeney Todd effectively or they're calling it Demon Barber I think to avoid any like copyright infringement issues right. so obviously you can't literally quote huge chunks of Phantom of the Opera otherwise Andrew Lloyd Webber's lawyers would be down your down your throat yeah um, and then the third one which I'm reading now is Hyde which is I don't know if you were aware of this but there is a musical version of Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde yes. called Hyde yeah I do know that yeah which I actually kind of like it's, it's very dark it doesn't have a happy ending but I really like yeah, it yeah weirdly enough that the, it does not have a happy ending strangely enough it does not end happily <laughs> technically you can argue that Phantom doesn't end happily if you wanted her to end up with Phantom even though there's a good reason that she shouldn't yeah um, like the fact that the he's a murderer murderer yeah. <laughs> so I don't always pick the murderer it's great and then I was like the other day I'd gone through so much so many arcs and things that I'd had to read and some of it was quite hefty stuff and I thought I really really want to read that book again I haven't touched it for about five or six years maybe longer and I'm like is it still on my Kindle and I found it 
and I was worried that I didn't have the other two books that maybe I, I don't know got them through Kindle Unlimited or something and I went and looked on Amazon and realised that there's another six books in the series and I completely <laughs> lost my shit and bought all of them Oh. <laughs> okay this this sounds really interesting found very they're entertaining all re- <laughs> they're all really cheap at the moment because the, the most recent book has just come out all the other books in the series are either free or 99p or 99 cents so for us they're like in the UK they're like 71p or 88p or something okay good incentive to go and check it out then (laughs) it's like yeah just seriously just go and buy the entire entire series and I'm shouting about it because I don't think this author gets enough credit I think she's a bit unsung because yeah maybe it's not high literature it doesn't really matter because they're really good stories that's really interesting okay definitely putting that on my list (laughs) (laughs) thank you very much you're welcome (laughs) and on that note guys we will say thank you very much for listening and we will catch you guys next week yeah thanks and goodbye bye you've been listening to dissecting dragons the speculative fiction podcast you can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from itunes For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note, no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.